when are we we're aiming to get this out on monday yeah um yeah that could work okay yeah yeah that could work What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. I know it's uh, it's been a few months since you've heard from us. Uh, we'd like to apologize to all of our loyal fans, mostly to Jack, our guest for this episode, for just uh, kind of disappearing off the face of the earth for so long. But we are back for the moment. Uh, it's great to be back on here. Great to be talking to you again, Martin. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, dude. How are you? How is uh, how is lobster country treating you these days? Uh, it's it's been all right. It's uh, very cold up here. I don't think they they don't have soccer up here, Martin. That's all. They they haven't brought it up here yet. I was uh, dismayed to learn that you know just it hasn't made its way this far up the coast. So how would you how would you define like uh, main culture if you had to put um, your finger on it? Because you know that that honestly sounds accurate to me. That that element of worldwide uh, sporting culture just hasn't quite trickled its way into the corner of the United States. What, yeah. what has? It, it, there's a lot that hasn't trickled its way into this corner of the United States. You're familiar with like the independent party, like uh, intimately you know, like, familiar, po- yeah. Politically, yeah. It's 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 kind of like that. They've got a big big group of people up here in Maine. Everyone everyone's just kind of doing their own thing, and you know that doesn't really work for soccer. It's like a it's a team based sport, right? It's like fishing's very popular up here because you can do it by yourself. That kind of organization for soccer it's uh not really what we're about i guess so since since moving there do you feel as though you have um transitioned to embody those uh those values uh not at all i you know but maybe someday it's only been a only been a few weeks give it some time that's right um tell me this lobster rolls are they to be eaten cold or hot because this seems to be like the eternal debate that i've had with everybody that lives in Boston versus everybody that doesn't. And I'm just curious, what's your take on it? I think, uh, you know, cold, right? That's wow. uh, traditional. What, what do they say in Boston? I think that's very controversial. That is uh, uh, someone who's actually Bostonian is going to correct me on this, but I think that's the traditional way that they eat them here. But uh, everybody else outside of Massachusetts tells me hot unequivocally. And well, what, yeah, what do they know? Really? I mean, probably nothing. So yeah. I think we're probably in good hands, you and me, with just each other. Um, okay. <laughs> Thank well, God for that. Back, back to business. Um, uh, what, el- what else is up? Uh, let me think. So I guess for whoever six people are listening, or maybe even more than that, based on the statistics that we just checked, actually, for the first time in like maybe three, four months for this show, um, we, we've taken a, a hiatus again. You know, I refrain from saying, you know, we're back at the beginning of this episode because I feel like that's just entirely disingenuous at this point. That's just setting expectations way too high. Um, we, we, the hiatus is definitely true though. We took a hiatus. It's, you know, we're getting in the habit of taking hiatuses. Um, but I guess the context is just that, yeah, we, we haven't really been, uh, doing this that often. And we, we did have an old episode that, we had recorded, I think, when did we, when did we even record this? April? Uh, I think April or May. That sounds, okay. sounds about right to me. So we recorded and- an episode with, with a very smart guy, um, Jack. I'm sure 
most of you that are listening to this are probably coming from his Twitter since he's a lot more active than <laughs> I certainly am. And I know you are um, these what? days, especially um, on, on, on that platform. But he, uh, he and I, and you, we, we sat down and had a nice little conversation about Deserby, like what is basic feels like a, a decade ago, frankly. Um, super, super interesting conversation. I say this because Jack brought everything to the table and we were just kind of like peppering him with questions as I'm sure you'll hear soon enough. Um, but we then from that point forward had some, you know, transitionary life events, I suppose, for both of us that, uh, I don't know, I'll speak for myself, like moving, starting a new job, moving to a new city, things like that. Um, those became the focus and I was traveling for a little while and just like kind of bouncing around the world for a little bit. And uh, that inhibits your ability to, uh, you know, put together a, a show like this. And so we kind of yeah. never got around to it and it's a hundred percent our fault. Yeah. Uh, we, we want to be really clear about that. It's, it's not <laughs> you guys, it's us, you know, it's, um, Will, you're so good at breakups, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I yeah i mean it's it's been it's been a hectic few months or you know hectic just busy and you know i think uh this has been a time i can speak for myself i think talking to martin too where i just haven't been as invested in soccer in general and i know that's a kind of a taboo thing to say on a soccer podcast or whatever this is but i think uh it's something that's is always gonna you know, kind of ebb and flow. You'll you'll be more into it certain seasons, certain months, and uh, but you know, there's there's no one we'd rather talk about it with than you guys. I guess we don't actually talk to you guys, but unfortunately for you guys, this is a very uh, you know uh, one way or two way, I suppose, conversation, and we can never really include those listening. So that was a little um, farcical of you yeah. to say, Will. But that being said, I I do I do think that. I share the same sentiment that like this is this is a really fun thing that we we spent a lot of time doing uh over the last i don't know year two years i don't even really remember i feel like the pandemic has has made it hard to keep track of time in that sense but yeah um i i also think that we talked at certain points during the uh you know the golden years the golden days weeks maybe of, of this show about fixture fatigue and maybe like the impact that fans had on the game and things like that. And I think that we probably both ran into, again, I'll, I'll stop speaking for both of us. I, I certainly ran into a position where I, I grew a little bit tired, I think, of watching the game and, and trying to intellectualize it so much and trying to analyze it to such a, um, I guess, uh, breaking it down into such tiny little parts and and feeling as though i was maybe overly scrutinizing something that ought to be left alone and 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 deserves to stand for itself and is more something an ob something to be something whose beauty is better you know appreciated than over overly mechanized that's uh, interesting i've kind of gone i've kind of gone back and forth on that theory and whether or not i truly believe it or you know whether the analysis is really the thing that I find most interesting in asking these types of questions that we've discussed so often, you know, between ourselves and on the mics as well. Um, these questions that we continue to reiterate are things that like we don't know the answers to, but we're just kind of uh, piecing together <laughs> random ideas and trying to make sense of them. But yeah. sometimes that process is really fun. And, and I think that we, you know, 
we will hopefully get back to, to doing some semblance of that, but there will be absolutely no promises in terms of the regularity of what that'll look like, nor, you know, when I suppose it'll exactly happen. I'm, I'm hoping it's soon. I think it's interesting that you're in a place where you feel like you, you want to just kind of strip things away and just appreciate more the beauty of soccer. I feel like, you know, for me, um, I kind of was watching soccer in a very analytical way, kind of all through last season, especially when I was coaching and trying to, you know, adapt ideas for stuff I was doing and, uh, kind of getting away from that and you know not doing the podcast anymore it feels like i'm just watching soccer kind of the same way i was as a kid like just for entertainment and it's, uh i don't know i think that's that feels nice in a way but i also maybe just with liverpool not having the best start of the season i don't feel quite as much passion for my team and for uh i guess the results of the game anymore it feels like i'm just you know it's just kind of a, mm. a chore watching some of these at some point it's not it's not that pure joy i used to get so i'm hoping uh this can maybe bring some of that back, you know, start uh, seeing some different angles of the game again. What What do you think that you in the past have watched soccer for? Do you think it's for the entertainment value? Do you think it's for the joy? Do you think it's the passion? I don't know. I feel like those are each slightly different in their own way. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is it is, great sports entertainment, you know, just like uh, the excitement, same reason I'd watch any other sport. But I think there's a, there, there's a certain beauty to the game. I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe. It's certain just like passing sequences, some of the flows sometimes when you're really like looking into that stuff and like trying to watch how the team moves there's there's some beauty there this is like a like geometric thing and i don't know if you're if you're more tuned out of the game i feel like that's just been missing for me i used to i used to love with liverpool games i just uh i'd sit there i'd watch our team play and i just like try to predict like where the next pass would be every single time like trying to think about like, you know, what the principles of the team were like how how they would play i love that i just i don't know that I just haven't haven't been thinking about it on that kind of level recently. It seems to me like it's possible that Liverpool's um, slight slip in form, or maybe just like general lack of inspiration, has maybe been a significant factor there. It, maybe it, it's been it, a mix of things. It, it's uh, I, I can't say it's helping. Uh, I think you know it's it's not all of it. But yeah, Liverpool have had uh, kind of just I don't know disappointing start of the season. I'm not sure if that's the do right you, word. Just discouraging is maybe a better word. Hmm. Does discouraging suggest that it's more of a harbinger for things to come? I I think this team is very much on the downslide. Uh, I think you know a lot of the pieces that made us what we were for the past few years are either gone or just not really what they're used to be. And you know I'm I've I've always been kind of a doom and gloomer. I'm just a I'm a negative person. I'm looking for things to be worried about. But I've I've been kind of thinking for years that our squad is just you know kind of steadily or i don't know it was never that great but it's just you, you look at all these players and like wow we're we're really need going to need to address this in four years and that's wow we're really going to need to address this in three years and now we're here and you know i i don't really see what the direction this team is going i i don't see really what our play style is going to be head towards the future i think we've had one system for a very long time and now we've like brought in darwin nunez who like might have worked well in the old system but we've also like switched switched to a completely different new system that he has been useless in so far and it's just clops clops like using inverted fullbacks again it's just it's weird i don't know it's uh it doesn't look like liverpool it doesn't feel like liverpool it's just 
Well, speaking speaking of inversions, I think it's funny. Like I, I you were always getting on my ass about my uh, disdain for Luke de Jong last year, and I, it's yeah. uh, it's a hill that I will certainly die on. And now you've got your own kind of version of this like tall, lanky forward that doesn't necessarily fit your play style. But you've got, I think, uh, I don't know. He's a young guy. He. I think we that's... talked about this extensively. Like he's had all these completely ludicrous comparisons to a guy who is much, much more established in the game, who's starting at the nine for City right now and scoring bags of goals. Like no. I don't know whether the criticism is super fairly placed or if the vendetta is like completely warranted, just based on his price tag and all these other things. We could maybe discuss that another time. But like I, I, I do think it's funny that we we stopped recording and suddenly it, you know you know, Liverpool are shit now and Barcelona is, is playing amazing. Like I, I love that we've got, you know, they're Liverpool's doing inverted fullbacks and we've inverted the quality of each respective club too. Um, yeah. that w- that's, that's a fantastic outcome for me at least. That was cute. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's, you know, uh, how much did Luke Dion cost? <laughs> uh, I, I don't even know if it yeah. cost a penny. It was a penny too much. Not, not 80 million. It's just, uh, you know, yeah, that one hurts. Like I don't say this lightly, but like I don't think I've watched many professional footballers that like I look at them. I'm like, you know, I could probably beat them at like a passing <laughs> a passing competition or something. All right, we'll save we'll save the Darwin Nunez kind of like uh, existential questioning yeah. for for an upcoming episode. Again, no promises. Um, do you want to talk about it, this episode at all? Why don't and, we uh, Why don't we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do that. Um, here. So, what's the context for this? We we talked to a really smart guy back in April. Uh, Jack is somebody who has studied uh, Deserby very extensively and has just fantastic insight into the way that he developed his teams at Sassuolo and then at Shakhtar most recently, and then obviously all of the complications with the political situation in Ukraine has caused him to depart. From there, you can certainly read and listen to the details of that type of thing basically anywhere on the internet. Yeah. Um, and then Graham Potter got taken by Chelsea most recently, uh, a very creative kind of up-and-coming uh, cult favorite tactical nerd kind of avant-garde, whatever you want to call him, manager who is now tasked with a much bigger club with a bigger budget, more celebrity focus, etc., and in his wake leaves a Brighton team that is really formidable, um, is tactically really interesting. Yeah, and, and is, is used to playing under a manager with kind of these avant-garde, uh, you know, intricate tactics, which, you know, could be something that benefits Deserve coming into a squad that's been used to, you know, kind of following, uh, I don't know, kind of more forward-thinking system than we used I to think. Say. I think he is definitely going to enter a locker room of players that are very malleable and uh, more attuned to listening to his ideas than I think your average PL side, which is probably going to be a little bit more indoctrinated. If you think about, I don't know, just me uh, throwing ideas out there, a, a, a Tottenham side whose Conte like rules and regulations are very strict and they have such structure to everything they do. It is so rehearsed. It's so choreographed. Um, Deserby has some interesting elements of that, as you'll, I'm sure, listen to in the in the next hour or whatever. Um, but those players, I think, are not going to be like so uh, deeply. The, the ideas of Grand Potter are not going to be so deeply ingrained in them that they have no. They're super hardwired. They have no way to learn something else. I think, if anything, Grand Potter was well known for being incredibly flexible, incredibly responsive to the opposition. And that's going to give Deserby an opportunity to to try a bunch of things and and 
really give us something fresh and interesting to look at, even if Brighton was already probably that team in the PL. So yeah, I know they're probably the a team that a lot of people were keeping an eye on this season. I think they're like fifth or something in the league. They've uh, they've had a great start, and all stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it should hopefully be an interesting episode uh, for people to listen to now, even though it's a completely different context when we record it because we record this back. It's just kind of an interesting look at this guy, and since then he's had a he's had a crazy, very much more uh, complicated few months than us with the whole situation in Ukraine, leaving Shakhtar, and now you know coming to the Premier League kind of out of nowhere. It didn't look like this opening was even going to be there a couple of weeks ago. And I think it's important to note too, just for the context of our guest, that this was a yeah this was a conversation that was held uh, before all of that happened, and so the the discussion that um, was recorded is something that talks about his time at these previous clubs. It's not so much, I would say, like a look ahead to what to anticipate at Brighton, what what kind of uh, shapes or, or, or ideas, you know, we, we expect to arise when he gets there. Uh, this is very much just kind of like, if you are interested in this manager, he is suddenly being he's suddenly taking charge of a club that's pretty prominent right now in england this is some historical background on what on the way that he thinks and the things that he likes and kind of the some of the unique aspects of his play style and his methodology that we can certainly expect could arise but for all we know he's cooking up something entirely new and we could be in for a treat too. So either way, I think, frankly, we're gonna. Yeah, I don't. Treat. I don't. Uh, I mean, you're right. It's this is not Brighton specific or anything. But I want to downplay kind of how tactically focused this was. I think if you if you listen to some of the points that Jack brought up and some of the things we talk about, I think there are definitely things we will see reflected in some degree. I mean, these are things that are kind of integral to the way he manages. I don't think this is, uh, you know, he's gonna drop some of these concepts completely, Brighton. Um, I think this has run its course. I think we're good for an intro. I think it's it's more than around course. Don't want to take too much focus away of what actually is an excellent episode. Uh, it, it's you know, it's weird to kind of tack this on this us getting back into the swing of things to something from back when we were actually both interested in soccer and had a lot to say about it. And uh, <laughs> but well, you know, yeah. What are you gonna? We do? wanted to put this out because it suddenly became very relevant, and yeah. we 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 found it to be a really lovely conversation, and hope you guys do too. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. Enjoy enjoy the episode. Let us know what you think. All right, here we are. Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. We've got Will here, myself, Martine, and Jack. Uh, we're really the triple threat this week. Um, Jack is a special guest. He's somebody who's... Writing has impressed many people um, on the soccer internet world, and I think that Will and I have both been quite intrigued by a particular area of interest of his uh, recently, and so we wanted to have him on the show. So welcome, Jack. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, Martin. Will. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think our plan for today, we are going to be talking about Deserby, um, the general concept as is usually the case is we're going to ramble a fair bit uh and we're going to talk about a bunch of different topics that have to do with what makes deserby ball so unique uh probably beginning with an understanding of what exactly defines that and then diving into a couple of the nuances of what he's done at shaktar um and and speaking to somebody who has spent plenty of time obviously watching and diving into his work so 
why don't we do just that? Jack, why don't you start by giving us a, a brief understanding of your background, kind of where, what you, where you come from, what's your deal, and how it relates to football in general? Oh well, yeah, accent-wise, you can probably pick it up. I'm Scottish, currently, <laughs> yeah, studying um, ancient history at Edinburgh Uni, which is fairly unrelated to the footballing side. As for you know, experience working in it tangibly, I have little to none. Which I, I've only, it's all been kind of, I guess, done individually. It's just I've got a, probably about three years ago started getting more analytical interest in football and it's just kind of developed gradually. It was nothing formal. I didn't have any plans set out. It just kind of I've naturally went towards where my interests are, which is, well, I watched a lot of Serie A prior to, well, really developing this more analytical interest. So, it's the team that I guess first sparked that would be Saris Napoli. I wanted to kind of understand how that functioned more. And then kind of from there you got, well, it's the Zerbi Sassuolo with the next interesting team. And that's just kind of been the platform I've built off of. Hmm. You mentioned history. Tell me a little bit about how that's, uh, I don't know, colored your perspective of football. Uh, I'm surprised, I guess, that you said too that Serie A was your place of soccer origin as opposed to maybe Glasgow Celtic or something of that ilk. Tell me why that as well. Um, okay, starting from, I guess, the connection with history, it's I've not been able to create or find anything myself. I'm sure if people look through my work, they'd probably be better identifying than why. Um, but I'm a mm-hmm. fairly idiosyncratic writer, so I don't know if I impart all my, I guess, slightly unique techniques onto something else rather than grasp it although there will be obviously a degree of interplay that is subconsciously working that i'm not really aware of so at least consciously i've struggled to make any real connections however i'm sure they're there and as for seria i don't really know in all honesty it's just kind of arbitrary um i think bt sport picked it up at the time <laughs> and it's just kind of they showed a lot of games it's i always think you're better just committing yourself to something and getting like a better idea of what whatever specialism is rather than trying to cover a broad range of teams especially i guess with the underlying element of the more analytical development is just some degree of specialization so you can focus and Hmm. yeah i think i don't know if it's a slower tempo of seria because i've always liked players like sergio busquets nemanja matic players of that ilk you know who are almost well uh, quite lethargic in how they go about things. A lower tempo, which is pertinent to you know, your discussion last week. And I don't know if that was what would draw me to it. Hmm. You know, it's funny. Will was actually a very lethargic player back in his day. Uh, it's unfortunate you never got to see him. Very, it, very slow guy. It's true. And I'm actually a, a big fan of Serie A for the same reason. I, uh, I found myself kind of drawn to it uh, in the same way, Jack. It's uh, I'm mainly a Premier League watcher you know Liverpool are my club but if I'm going to watch a league outside of that it's almost always going to be Serie A and I think uh you know the the slower pace of the game also really does draw me to it I find uh you know the positioning of players and uh the tactics seem to be a a little bit more structured in Serie A I suppose than they are in some other leagues I think uh they have a bit harder lines they have to play by and I think it's uh that can be interesting to kind of get a sense of what exactly the coach has told them to do. Well, yeah, no, I think it's more pronounced, so it makes it, I guess, easier if you're looking for an analytical perspective because you can grasp more what is attempted to be. It's Everything's a lot more structured, as you said, so well, you can gather an idea of what's attempted and what's been planned rather than what's kind of happening spontaneously in a response to the flow of the game. 
Yeah, it's mm. it's hard to properly analyze a very chaotic soccer match. So um, having that slower pace is a so good place to start. You mentioned Jack Sassuolo. Tell me, um, what? Let's just start there. That's where all this deserving stuff begins, really, in the in the in the significant public eye. Um, what drew you to that team? What was Deserby doing back in Serie A that was piquing your interest? Well, yeah, I guess it's well the style of play that we'll cover throughout, but it just, I guess, almost instantaneously resonated with me. It's just kind of, it's odd because I'd never had a passion for that style of football, like sort of your Pep Guardiola-esque, I guess, positional play. Like, it's been something I'd enjoyed, obviously, but it hadn't been, I guess, the primary interest in that kind of fostered watching the Zebra's football. And I think seeing a team not at a lower level, but at least, well, you can see um, more imperfections because of the lower player quality, just things like that. Well, they face high pressure more, and uh, we're gonna, well, I'm sure we'll come on to that, but it's, at least in Serie A a lot, they were forced to be more transitional, which means, well, they're essentially what they attempted to do controlling from the center would get upset by the opposition's pressing scheme so it's working well guess the transitions between high pressure mid pressure and then a team sitting back i think are more pronounced when you're dealing with a mid mid table club in comparison to a mega club where you're gonna focus much more on the consolidated aspect final third second third facing mid to low blocks whereas at sasswell you saw like the whole range of potentialities Interesting. So circumstantially, their position in the table contributed somewhat to what became an interesting thing for you. But you've, you've spoken a little bit in pieces of yours that I've read about principles and shapes being fundamentally what makes Deserby's sides so successful. Um, if you had to encapsulate that idea, you know, what distinguishes... And obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about some principles and some sequence ideas and and methods that he used. But shapes, shapes intrigues me. What what are the shapes that are unique about him, um, and how do they make them? How does he make them his own? Well, yeah, it's either a two, three, five, four, one, five from like the consolidated base, depending on what your preference is semantically. But I'd say the most pronounced feature of Deserbi's play compared to other teams that use a similar shape is the compactness of the fullbacks it's the slight well it's well yeah the central compactness in general general much higher than what you see elsewhere i think part of that is due to quite high levels of man orientation in seria at the time which hmm. well yeah you can positionally manipulate so the more compact you are the more space wide players and this will have. is this is in possession in build-up yes yeah yes okay. so it's very compact positioning with the fullbacks staggered slightly in between both the defense midfield well the, the single defense midfielder in this instance and hmm. i say fullbacks it's more they occupy the position that a fullback typically would occupy depending on what team what set of players it can be either the left defense midfielder because they start at least starting from goal kicks in the first third in a 4-2-4 shape so at least frequently with let's say Shakhtar this season it's been the dropping left defense midfielder. And Manuel Locatelli would do that quite frequently at Sassuolo as well. So hmm. it depends on the profile player because, well, they had Ruggiero at Sassuolo who would quite frequently push higher. And you have similar with Dodo at um, Shakhtar. So those are the fullbacks that push on. So you have a compensating dropping midfielder. So it's a lot of that's just more profile based. But I guess for simplicity, I'll call them, I like to call them fullbacks because they occupy the position that you most typically associate that with. And so, when you say consolidated, what exactly are you referring to? Consolidated is more just a term I use when 
the game is structured. Well, not stru it's not structured per se. It's when there isn't very much pressure on the ball, hmm. and I'd say it really it pertains most to pressure on the ball and how you adapt around it. So I'd say transitional circumstances, which are, are the opposite to consolidated, are where space is opening because the opposition is attempting to compact on you, which I guess leaves exploitable spaces elsewhere as they prioritize that compactness over pitch mm. coverage. And consolidated play doesn't, I guess, negate the compactness element and more it pertains more to the direct ball orientation. So it's more if a team isn't facing very much pressure, their play will be consolidated, and then when they enter the opposition's line of engagement or line of more heavy engagement, wherever that may be, the play becomes more transitional because people are stepping out of position to apply pressure to the ball. Okay, and I think that those moments where the play pauses is very signature Shakhtar thing that we'll also talk about a little bit. Um, when you mentioned, so this is the this is the structure that they nominally start off with. But my question, I suppose, is what about this is so fascinating? What what is what like you know stirs you up when you watch this? Because I suppose that fullback positioning is something that I think a lot of different clubs have tried to tweak uh, in in one way or another. There's been plenty of investigation into what Pep has done with City with fullbacks and and trying to have some sort of um, lopsided positioning system where players will fill in on one end and they will perform kind of the opposite rotational switch on the other. What about this specific configuration is so interesting? Um, the thing that I like most about it is the connections established, especially the fullback to winger connection and the centre-back to fullback connection. It essentially just means the ball can travel very quickly without much positional movement. So it just every actions can occur very fluidly which allow for rotation so if the center back passes to the fullback they they then have direct access to the winger but because their initial central positioning the opposition of lightly compacted around well both that fullback and then you have the player in between the lines usually but well, yeah the attacking midfielder type player in between the lines which forces i guess the vertical passing lane to be cut which then allows the wider pass to the fullback to be used and then from there they can carry their run either underlap overlap so i'd say it's i'm particularly fond of the wide dynamics which are fostered by the sort of strong connections in the mm -hmm. center leading to a free wide man and then yeah, and I, I would say that's something that really appeals to me about this as well i know we uh we talked about how the you know the base of the formation is very compact, uh, trying to keep possession here. But the the front line uh, is actually incredibly spread out. Um, and what I really like about this is they they give up the width on the flanks earlier in build up, but that means they have a wide option up high on both flanks always. And so um, you know just the potential for switches it seems like very easy to get into 2v1 situations by using that fullback to get the play over quickly yeah no exactly i agree with you 100 i love that aspect yeah, yeah it's the, the touch lane very few things i love more than touch lane warriors hmm. and speaking of i guess one one term that you've used quite a bit um to describe certain players that allow you to achieve that sort of qualitative superiority without even necessarily needing numbers up in the channels are the, this idea of unstoppable guys. These players that you have full confidence. I actually watched, I believe, Jeremy Boga play um, in the 
Europa League a couple days ago, and I had never actually seen him play before, and I was taken aback by how eager he was to take players on 1v1, and probably to the extent to which some teammates were getting frustrated he wasn't getting the ball off of him, but he had this uncanny ability to blow by players and just such close control. So what what about... What is the role of that type of player in these systems? Obviously, Boga used to play for Sassuolo, but no. Salomon is the guy now for Shakhtar that is kind of occupying that role. What what is they what is what are they able to do that other players can't, and why is that critical to the system? Well, yeah, I'd say well the central compactness produces space on the flanks, which can be easily accessed because of the positioning of the fullback. So the player that's going to likely make territorial gains is going to be the winger because they get the most space initially upon reception. So from there, you want to have a profile which is strong at dribbling, who can engage their fullback 1v1, either to beat them directly or just to continually force play back because the rest to engage. So I'd say the most important thing in that regard is the territorial gains that you can make from having that initial duel and then often attempted doubling up, which creates space in behind, which then can allow from switches because once either Boga, Solomon, whoever, engages the fullback's rest and midfielder tucks back into cover space then opens up behind from uh, the well it'll be the inverted fullback coming and then you can perform a switch and just like a simple overload to isolate action generated through the threat of a duel or you can have just the direct they attempt to beat them in a duel they're successful and then we have access to just across essentially Hmm. so yeah, I would say territorial expansion is probably the most important part that comes from dribbling, assuming that most teams are reticent to allow that player to engage one-on-one, which is why them being of high quality is really important. Sure. I mean, Will and I have discussed in the past, we've, ac- we've actually considered doing an entire episode on this idea um, as to whether if you have one player who is supremely talented, especially on the dribble and is able to isolate opponents with and get past them with great efficiency, tactically speaking is it is it a good idea to try to force the ball to them right because i ideally for either of these two sides in sassuolo or shakhtar the goal in theory is well you know again we'll i keep mentioning this we'll speak a little bit more about like the specifics of build up and things of that nature but once you are building when you when you're moving the ball from one end of the field to the other and you have this unstoppable guy this is effectively the focal point right for you you are trying ideally to get this player the ball in areas where they can exercise their their qualitative superiority the thing to ponder to a certain degree is whether this kind of one-dimensionalization of an attack is a good idea or if it makes you too predictable uh have you seen other teams stymie this type of thing effectively is there a way that you can you know obviously there's some teams that might man mark this often it's a number 10 or maybe a winger with a six or something of that nature i'm thinking casemiro on messi in certain periods of el Clasico's of the past you know maybe five years ago things like that where you try to take the player out of the game entirely with just one player or do it is it it's an immediate you know double teaming action once they receive the ball do you do you worry at all that this idea of trying to find one guy with great consistency makes it too obvious where things are headed, or how do they remain unpredictable despite trying to consistently hit this target? I would say a pertinent feature related to this is their width. You can't man mark a player that wide because you just leave too much space yeah. open to be infiltrated in the half spaces. So essentially, any sort of individual marking like that 
is impossible. So they'll always get space to re- that. That initial reception is almost guaranteed, provided the build-up prior has been fluid enough to get them the ball quickly before the opposition can uh, shuttle across the ball side. So I'd say they're almost always guaranteed to receive in space, provided the build-up works fluidly. So it, that's less of an issue. So I think it's more. It becomes whether you can crowd them out and then stop the complementary movement, like the overlaps and underlaps, from being effective through, I guess, effective changing the rules and things like that. And how, I guess, flexible you are to things like well, ball-sided man-oriented. So let's take, like, Inter last season managed successfully really quite well because of, well, they had the wing back, so that increases your horizontal coverage. So increased horizontal coverage on the last line just allows them to get tighter, quicker, <laughs> seeding territory higher up. So just things like that can work. And they have, well, Inter especially had a, a very well-drilled man-oriented covering system. So they just the centre-backs could follow any underlaps tightly. And so I'd say horizontal coverage is what often under what can undermine this. And then provided that the centre-backs are well-drilled, they can then mark any complementary movement. But back to, I guess, holistically relying too too much on, I guess, individual players. I think it can be a bit erratic because it you put a lot of faith in their quality to break down the team, especially well Shakhtar, Shakhtar Sassuolo. They had it, can, it. I wouldn't say disconnected, but it can be quite a rigid setup because of how everything is set in place and everything's so structured. Yeah. So it's you are relying on players like Boga Berardi, Solomon Pedrinho to have that creative killer edge, similar to I guess someone like Kevin De Bruyne in Man City who is their high risk passer. And so it's similar a high risk dribbler, high risk passer. Those are the people that I guess break with not break with the, with the system within a certain structure. So if someone like Boga Berardi, if they're both having off days that can hurt your progression, kind of undermine your plans to progress. And equally, if you lack backup, it can hurt there. So I'd say it's reliant on having winger profiles who are good in duels and can make incisive runs and at least pose somewhat of a direct threat outside the box, especially you got that with Berardi. So you had two different profiles at Sassuolo. You had the dribbly type in Boga and you had the more direct threat in Berardi, which Oh yeah, from the edge of the box, he was more of a goal scorer. So it was performing those like half space to half space switches you get once the fullback overlaps. The idea would be pass to Boga, Boga dribbles inside, you get an overlap which drags away the fullback. Boga then plays it in either through the centre or directly. Berardi's on the receiving end, receiving an overlap himself, continues to dribble inside, has a shot. And it's whether, I guess you believe this is a sustainable method of chance creation because it does rely a lot on somewhat rigid patterns yeah. and it doesn't create the highest quality of chances directly unless the overlap is actually used so you're preparing around the opposition working around the overlap and then attempting to use the opposition's sensible response to then create a threat of yourselves interesting so there's not there's not much chaos built in this into the system you're kind of relying on these individual players to create it for you uh, uh yeah i'd say that I like uh, I like that you pointed out the width kind of being the important factor that makes this unstoppable player kind of actually unstoppable because I I tend to agree um, you know and me and Martin have talked about this in the past uh, a guy I 
sometimes get on for being an unstoppable player who's used in the wrong way is like Neymar, who, you know, I love on the wing, but I think has some serious problems when he plays centrally. And uh, I, I do like this idea that having the unstoppable player on the wing, the only real way to prevent that is by, you know, overloading the ball side from the defense, like you said. And, you know, like, obviously, if you get trapped in that and the player is just having a bad dribbling day and is unable to progress from there, that's one thing. But if you use that as your first step in possession and then try to quickly switch it to another area from there, that can still be effective, even if they do adapt. You know, in the it's middle, funny you, s- you, it's funny you say that, Will. Locked out a bit more, I think. Yeah, I, I thought, honestly, that your disdain for Neymar was just a personal vendetta thing. But I suppose, positionally, it is interesting to think about you know, he, he's a smart player that that wants to take guys on, but he also has the passing range. And I think that if you build this into the methodology that you go into each game thinking about and you say, listen, you're having a day where you're beating guys, you take them on and you do that for us and we'll attack down the side that you receive the ball on. If you find that you simply are not able to get it off or you're just having a, you know, a bad day at the office, it might take some humility from these players that are obviously often these magical, very arrogant guys. But they still will probably have that same aura that magnetizes defenders. And so it might be more of a receive the ball, wait until they collapse around you, switch it quickly, and then attack via the other end. And Uh, so if uh, you have uh, have that contingency in place, then I think that it can be very effective. And it's a way to kind of circumvent this issue of funneling your entire progression and attack through one particularly dynamic player who there is obviously the chance that there is some... You know, maybe they have a bad day themselves. Maybe there's some novel tactic that's imposed that makes it hard for them, right? Like recently we saw PSG put Danilo Pereira on Vinicius, who is, I think, pretty categorically an unstoppable guy right now. And he simply cut off all distribution into him. And so that's a bit of a unique thing that he probably hadn't seen before. He now might be more prepared with some video analysis and other things to handle moments like that. But in a match like this, it's almost like, okay, well... Real Madrid in that first leg were, were stifled because of it. And so in order to design a robust system, you want to ensure that you have methods in place for when the, you know, the first switch turns off, I suppose. But yeah. one thing... And I, I love that you mentioned uh, a player's aura because, you know, it's the same thing where, like, if Neymar messes up a couple dribbles, that doesn't mean they're going to lessen up the marking on him. Same thing for Boga or Solomon or a player like that. And it's a... Uh, it's just it's a different way of creating numerical superiorities, I guess. I mean, you can either work the ball around to create a superiority, or you can say, hey, as soon as Neymar touches it, two defenders are coming over here. There's space in other areas of the pitch. Let's just use that. And I think on top of that, too, one one thing, Jack, that you had mentioned loosely is this idea of underlaps and overlaps. And I want to get into that because, in theory, if a guy is having a poor day on the ball, the other alternative is to say, okay, you are the receiver, but you are not the eventual endpoint for our final ball uh, character, right? And so if you have somebody that's underlapping or overlapping, you can involve the fullback or maybe an interior or a lateral midfielder, whatever you want to call them, and allow the dragging effect of this player that is so magnetizing to create space for them to eventually get a ball in the box and things of that nature. Now, tell me this. How do you distinguish between the underlaps and the overlaps with Deserby's system? And maybe even just more abstractly, how do you compare those? Because I've thought about this a lot recently, too, in terms of seeing, I think, a lot more underlapping runs, especially in, in the PL and other, I think, 
leagues where the half spaces have become increasingly prioritized and people are trying to receive almost with their back to the field and kind of whip around and make these crosses. It seems like this is becoming more and more of a preferred route. So I'm curious to understand a little bit better why the underlap maybe poses advantages over the over. Um, I guess the main reason I've formulated is that an underlap has what I call a central discombobulating effect in that you're drawing players away from the center because the run's going center to wide so that if it's going to be tracked directly you're dragging someone with you whereas if it's not tracked with you just play the underlapping pass you gain territory in wide areas and then because it's less directly dangerous than overlap because you're not facing at least frequently the player running onto it isn't facing the box so they're facing back is going to have to turn in on themselves and then work it backwards again so it's more of a tool for territorial expansion it's a bit i'd say it's different in the box but even mm. then, you want them to expand in the box because the opposition will compact a lot in that area. So you can try and get a first-time ball because once the distances have been cut a little, you can go for a let. The ball doesn't have to really generate as much power and everything on it. The technical accuracy is less important once you get in the box. But I'd say generally, underlaps are beneficial because they upset the structure of the center and then allow for progression in between usually the first and second line of the opposition's defense. Whereas an overlap possesses a more directly threatening route because you're facing the opposition's goal as you overlap. So I would say, especially in build-up, there's a general preference towards underlap underlaps because it upsets an opposition's central structure. Hmm. Yeah, I think I like that's that. a- uh, you know an overlap is great in transition, but generally speaking, you know it's going to be at the most a wide back switching from being marked by a wide midfielder to being marked by a wide back, which you know most decent sides are going to be able to handle pretty quickly. You know that diagonal run, it's going across the territory of maybe three, four different players in there. That's uh, you know dis- discombobulating indeed. Well, tell me, tell me, Will, too, uh, Liverpool, from the little that I've seen in the past couple of years, frankly, uh, are a team that do a fair bit of overlapping, you know, and a lot of crosses from wide areas very high up the field. How would you, how would you compare this sort of alternative method to that? Or maybe am I misreading? Uh, what- no, I, I, would, I would completely agree. Liverpool are an incredibly overlap-dependent team. Um, underlapping is actually something I wish we would do a lot more, given the profile of the players we have in the box. I sometimes feel like we cross a little bit more than we should. Um, but it's, it's also tough because we don't have uh, the most technical uh, ball advancers in midfield. So generally, once we get into the final third, we are looking to play it out to the wings to progress. You know, the underlap create, perhaps uh, creates some discombobulation, but it doesn't get the ball into the area we really need it to be in to get our chance creators on it. Hmm. And moreover, your service from those areas has become perfected to such a fantastic degree that it's almost a pity to do anything else. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's so perfect that, you know, the fact that all of our forwards are like five foot eight doesn't seem to matter. And the crossing <laughs> is it's actually still the best option just because the quality of balls has been so good, which is it's it's bizarre. It's uh, honestly a little frustrating to watch at times. Like, you know, obviously Liverpool are my team, but I would I wouldn't say it's like my favorite style of soccer in the world. But, you know, it's far from the worst. So right, could funny. I add a, like a, a semi question in here? It's sure, of course. Because. Well, no, it's just I had I was in a similar position to Martin and I hadn't really watched Liverpool properly in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So about a month back, I decided to watch five games, get an idea, okay. and at least 
I don't know if this is confirmed. This is just kind of me speculating. But I saw Henderson take a lot of underlaps. So it's frequently Henderson, Henderson is the one who does yeah. occasionally. Actually, yeah, yeah um, Thiago Van Dijk would switch to Salah, then Henderson would. Yeah, he does. He does that occasionally. Um, it has. It kind of comes and goes. It it depends on who else is in midfield. Uh, when when we have Fabinho and Thiago in there, and Henderson is able to play as the most advanced, he is usually the best about that. But uh, in in recent months, it's been pretty rare that that has been the case. And usually, we have Ox or somebody like that in there who's a bit more static, who doesn't really go out to the wing in order to start being able to make an underlapping run. That's really one of the features of Henderson's game because he's so often out in those wide positions already because he, he does almost all of the work in covering for uh, Trent when he goes upfield. So he usually finds himself like in kind of, I guess, what, what would be this wide back position kind of if we're doing the analog to what uh, Deserbi's formation yeah. um, in that line of three right in front of the center backs. Hmm. And then it's so- uh, the wide backs who are actually in the wingers' positions. Yeah. I think it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition, this one in particular, just because of the usage of these profiles of players. I think one thing that I find you mentioned too, Jack, earlier that particularly interesting about the underlap is that the eventual point of reception, I think, is advantageous, though the body positioning is much more difficult. I think that crossing the ball from the half space has become a thing that teams have gotten exceptionally good at, and ultimately with less travel distance for the ball, these tiny little advantages that strikers gain in the box in terms of their positioning and their runs and their decoys, uh, you can exercise that advantage much more. The defense is given much less time to react than when the ball is floated from the corner flag and everybody has the chance to kind of accommodate themselves. The one thing that I think is obviously more difficult is receiving the ball on your right-hand side and even across it into the left, as opposed to receiving it in front of you as you are driving inwards from the flank and delivering a ball there, though I think the teams have gotten really good at it. Um, I think that it probably takes a player who looks in the box before they make the run to get an idea of where people are starting. As the ball is passing, they take another glance, they know where people are, and then they can play the ball. I think without those quick looks, you'll find yourself facing the corner flag after this underlapping run on the ball, and then it's that annoying thing where players will just kind of circulate it back, and it feels almost as though you've deflated the sequence a little bit. But irrespective of all of that, I I, I want to ask, um, complementary movements, we talked a little bit about underlapping and overlapping as just these little micro sequences that can happen. But tell me more about complementary movements in the final third and the ways in which rotations can further destabilize things because we talked so much about the flanks and their importance, but this is a way that you can kind of move and shake and and create even more marking uh, questions for the opponent that typically result in someone being loose and free. Yeah, I don't. I'd say I wouldn't say Deserbian teams do anything particularly special. In the sense, not it's effective stuff. It's like your typical third man runs, or when a, the central player drops off, you have someone move into the space that he vacated. It's nothing, I guess, that you wouldn't see elsewhere. I don't think there's anything particularly unique. They still perform that aspect, I guess. Well, yeah, they perform it well. It's hmm. something they have well drilled, but there's no particularly unique idea in there. Okay. Whereas so... I think with the underlap. In particular, it's, I think you mentioned not liking it going back, but it's if you underlap, especially final third, you're reaching, well, not the corner, you're about six yards vertically from the touchline. And then when you build back from there, especially let's say you have a player of someone like Trent Alexander Arnold or Draw Cancelo's quality crossing, it's they'll then move into the half space. And because players are double well, attempting to compact 
on the ball, which is then progressed territorially. The half-space cross is coming from about, let's say, 20 yards from goal, and that can be particularly dangerous. So it's attempting to get the opposition deeper hmm. so that you can perform crosses from closer in. But yeah, as for complementary movement in central areas, it's just your typical forward drops and then the interior player will look to invade that space or forward drops wall passes a third man run that goes on just your typical i guess things that you'd find in probably most teams these days hmm i think that idea of of probing really deep and pushing the the opponent's offside line back enables some interesting movements from the striker too for those cross positions in the half space where you can imagine a player reaches the touch line effectively swings back their entire defensive line has kind of adjusted accordingly one quick ball played first time as a return pass to say kevin de bruyne or bernardo silva let's say we're talking about man city a lot um kind of at the corner of the box that is terribly dangerous with players that while the defense has just moved back and is trying to step up, you have somebody coming in late. Now they've got all the momentum. And I think that that speaks a little bit to this idea of, of dynamic superiority too, which I think you've talked about in some capacity. Um, we've, I mean, on Touchline Theory, we've written about numerical superiorities and we've chatted about qualitative superiorities, a couple of different things in that regard. But dynamic superiority is a very interesting idea that has more to do with uh, motion and timing. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Well, yeah. So I think it's I'd say the dynamic superiority is when yeah you have superiority in timing through and it often occurs because you initiate the movement first because that's one of the benefits conferred on the attacking team. And I guess linking back to the element of stopping play and creating like set piece like conditions, it's it just attempts to get the opposition because the opposition, especially if they react in a man man oriented manner are always one step behind you. So it's attempting to exploit that element of having the initiative and you knowing what's going to happen before the opponent knows what's going to happen. So I speak about the dynamic superiority a lot when it comes to automatisms because that's kind of predicated on having superior knowledge of what's going to happen to mm. the opposition. It's about dropping into space. So I'd say the dynamic superiority it often occurs either when you see this quite a lot. It's players take a touch directly into space. It's why someone like Pep hates half turns. They want you to take it directly into space so you can continue your momentum so that the transition can happen as fluidly as possible. So I'd say dynamic superiority is the most pertinent when dropping into space and when looking to be more transitional. So you see it quite a lot when building deep. It will be, especially if they have like a smaller forward. I think this is, at least I conceptualize it as how smaller forwards almost get the, that hold-up effect that you want from bigger strikers who have the quality of superiority. It's, I get there's a quality of element to the dynamic superiority in that if you're like a small, agile player like Pedrinho, you can exploit it a bit, or Phil Foden for a Manchester City example. You can exploit it more because you're looking to receive tight and then turn your defender or play a quick one-two to then quickly turn and expose the space that you've now um, well, yeah, left open. I don't know if that's particularly clear because I'm trying to no, 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 I think, I think it's a, a few ideas messed in that one. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I, I love it. I think I like, a, you know, initiative, which you mentioned. That's a, you know, this is something I, I talk to my players about a lot when I coach about, uh, you know, how you have as the attacking team, you generally are carrying the initiative and you have a certain degree of control over what the defense has to do and where they have to position themselves. But uh, I, I want to touch on, you mentioned like a, automated or uh, I, I don't remember what the word exactly was um, 
Automatisms. Automatisms, yes. Um, and that's something I hadn't really thought about as part of this dynamic superiority before. Um, but it is it is kind of the same concept. So do you want to explain like what you mean by that a little bit? Well, yeah, it's if you're the possession team, I guess, performing an automatism, you know what's going to occur before it actually occurs. And from that, you can make movements which adapt around that so that you can be prepared to receive more dynamically so it's if if you know that your job is to drop into space beforehand you're already reacting with that initiative prior so you know what's going to happen so rather than it being spontaneous and then you do and then you have to pick up or wait for let's say it's a fullback a fullback incisive pass to a dropping forward so it's if that's happening spontaneously you're going to have to hope that the fullback catches on to the movement mm -hmm. and then you know what's going. You know what you're going to do after that as well. Whereas in an automatized sequence, you know what's going to happen. You know that he's going to pass to your particular moment. You know that whatever player you're looking to find in space will be here. So then you can act on that with more fluidity. And yeah, I guess I, it's things like fluidity which play into the dynamic superiority. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if you have this in Scotland, but it sounds like you're describing like a play from American sports almost, um, you know, in, in like football or basketball over here, you know, teams will have like set sequences that they run based on this. And obviously this is, this is a little bit less structured, which is one of the things I just generally like about soccer, but it's the same idea. You know, these might be things you might be practicing on the training ground, just like these short little sequences of passing, like you mentioned, you know, that, that ball to a dropping forward and everyone on the team just knows immediately what you're going to do after that. And, you know, it's preset and that means you can play with a, you know, very high pace because there's the, the decision-making time is kind of taken out of the equation for the attacking team, but potentially not for the defensive team. Because if this is the first time in the match that you do this, or, you know, they haven't like already caught on to your automatism and have figured it out, then you have that huge mental edge. Yeah, no, I think you mentioned the most pertinent variable there, which is time. Because if a sequence is automatized, well, yeah, it cuts out all decision making time, yeah. which just grants you ex extra split seconds. And you can use those split seconds to conduct actions more quickly. And especially if you're looking to exploit space, which is getting closed off, those micro gains can be massive in conducting the action and getting the ball to the player who can then play the final pass. So yeah, I'd say the element of time, especially in automatized sequences, yeah, so important. So one of the things that we discussed last week was about, we try to dive into this idea of, of tempo and what it means and speed of play and how to quantify it. And one of the pseudo conclusions that Will and I arrived at was this idea that it's almost as if the accelerations are what matter more. It's the derivative of tempo that is important. And it seems to me like this idea of dynamic superiority somewhat motions to that too, where you could look yeah. at two players, let's say, you know, you look at a matchup on the left-hand side of the field and the right-hand side of the field in a very theoretical scenario. And you have on the left, you, let's say you have a 2v1 and the right, you have a 1v1. The 2v1 is the is the numerical superiority you play that typically because you have a higher percentage chance of beating the defender let's say on one side you have a dribbler winger against a a, a center back who's you know forced to cover the the fullback uh, or forced to cover the winger and on the other side you have you know your striker who typically heads the ball doesn't really carry it against their fullback you might pick the better matchup based on qualitative things this idea of, of bringing dynamism into it almost says if you have a situation where a player, you mentioned deep buildup, Van Dyke is on the ball and you've got Mane running from outside in, beating their fullback and about to cross over the offside line, 
suddenly their pace and their momentum are that is the compelling option versus this stagnant center back they're running past because of the, the motion, because of the movement, because of the impetus. And I think that's just a very interesting lens to look at different options through. And I think that proposing that as a fundamental is something that can encourage players to try to move more if they understand that those dynamic matchups are favorable for them. And as a passing target, you can look for dynamic superiority. It's going to make people who want the ball think, well, hmm, I should probably move in order to achieve that and improve my chances of perception. And that in turn would increase the chances of obviously progressing. So I think all of this is kind of neatly tied, tied together and Will's, you know, segue into automatisms is very interesting as well, because I suppose the, you know, we talk about basketball a little bit on this podcast too, because Will's a massive NBA fan. Typically when you're playing basketball, it's very discretized the way that this works, right? You, the inbound happens, the player kind of jogs, the point guard jogs down the court, they call out a play, the play is executed, it works or it doesn't work, they reconfigure, they try to score. Yeah, because, you know, basketball is segmented into very firm, like 24 second possessions, you know, you're, you're starting from the exact same position on the field every 24 seconds every time, that makes it pretty easy to have set plays from that position. And I, I think, uh, you know, going back to what you said about um, these these being like a good arguments for uh, the change of pace being more important. I would tend to completely agree with that because I think, uh, you know, in soccer, it's it's not as easy to set up these plays as, as it would be in another sport. So I think, right. you know, when you're trying to do that, naturally, you are going to play at a bit more deliberate of a tempo, perhaps, while trying to sort out, you know, that first stage of play and getting to the point where you can start uh, your planned sequence, but you know the trade-off then is hopefully that planned sequence is is so tuned up that you know that that change then you know that's like ups your maximum tempo over what it would be with an angry perform. So you know going slower before and then reaching at even higher speed than you could have after that is like that sounds fantastic to me. That's exactly what I would want to try to do. That's going to wreak havoc on defenses. I think I, I'll, I have a very good clip to send you. I'll send you afterwards of a deserve team doing. I think something you really like in that it's one of the examples of stopping play, but it's stopping play which creates a predictable circumstance. So if you know you're going to come up against a mid to low block that won't apply pressure to the centre backs, the centre back can stop play entirely, which I think I haven't seen done to the same extent any other team but Shakhtar and Sassuolo. And then from there, well, yeah, you see all the movements ensue. So play grinds to a halt completely, which may be the issue with a homogenized conception of tempo is that. <laughs> It play just grows, grows to a stop entirely, and then yeah, it's that's once fine. the ball is actually in movement. Yeah, it. Yeah, the slower it, you are, the f- more opportunity you have to accelerate. That's yeah, good. and oh. I think that that in and of itself poses an interesting idea. This notion that well, the continuity of this game is one of the things that we find so interesting, and and it's a th- idea that we weaponize a lot to uh, delegitimize other sports, or at least I think <laughs> I probably do. Oh, but for sure. I. Th- I think one thing that's interesting is this notion that like, yeah, so you have the ability to completely freeze things. And what's I've always, always, always found fascinating about these clips of Deserby that I've seen is this notion that like, there, right, there's these triggers to know kind of when to begin things and they always will stop it at a certain position and then you start seeing, it's almost like the, the entire team accelerates together. It starts with the ball that's maybe played into the six, the six returns it back to the center back, there's some destabilizing movement in the periphery, somebody receives inside, it goes back to the six again, and it's almost like they're, they're kind of, there's, a, there's some sort of conductor that's just like speeding things up, speeding things up. I guess 
maybe one question there too that we talked about a little bit last week. Um, we we discussed this idea of should everybody have wield the ability to change tempo or should it only be one player who really, really knows what they're doing and you rely on that one player to be the one that orchestrates the rest of the team? Would you say that Shakhtar or Sassuolo in their time, were, were they all looking to one guy to initiate things? Are there maybe clusters where you have maybe this pod of three players on the right-hand side you know, they all are looking towards one person to begin things and depending on their movements, they respond? Or is it just like, we freeze and whoever sees something starts and the rest of us all follow? I'm very uh, curious to understand that. I'm quite curious about this too, especially given that uh, I know these are teams that tend to kind of focus on one guy up front. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it's the same in build-up. Um, yeah, so I'd say, well, at Shakhtar, the player that's primarily responsible for that is Marlon, who he brought over with him from Sassuolo. So I think having, I guess, that ingrained knowledge is quite important from that regard. And because to create predictable circumstances in football, you're not going to be able to get them. Well, the, the ones we, you get in attacking regions are the ones we talked about, the unstoppable guys, which are slightly different. You can get... I guess the automatism in that regard is things like underlaps, overlaps, pre-planned ideas like that. Mm. So. Whereas if you're in between the lines in central regions, you're just not going to get enough time on the ball to actually start these things yourself. So the starting point always has to be deeper. So it's typically mm. a defense midfielder, but even then, they frequently have to drop deep to receive the ball in enough space to actually initiate these sequences because they're almost set piece-like. So I would say it definitely oriented towards starting in deep central regions where play is most predictable, but also where you have a lot of avenues to attack. So, oftentimes you'll see an automatism which uses a fullback, fullback reception, and then looks to use. Well, I like. Uh, I, I I hate the jargon I have, but it, it works for me at least. So, if you if this is a bit obfuscating, I, I do apologize. But I call it the symbiotic effect of vertical and horizontal stretching. So it's essentially, right. tell us about that. I love oh, a good. Yeah, I, I love, love a guy with a good vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, when the fullback receives, they then get diagonal access to the space in between the first and second lines of well, sure. the th third and second lines of the opposition attack. So you can perform a diagonal pass that cuts straight through to the half space. So you often see that. In, I guess. You could think, oh, that's the first move, but if you go back, it's almost always that occurs because you need the initial central compactness to take advantage of that. So it occurs from either the goalkeeper having possession or a central, the centre back in quite a central positioning having it and then moving it out wide. So I'd say most of these things have the deep, deep players responsible. At Shakhtar, it's primarily Marlon, and at Sassuolo, I'd say it was Locatelli. Hmm. And, and so. I guess one question that I have too is within these automatisms, when you are, you know, you're pausing play to try to arrange yourself in a configuration that everybody collectively recognizes, that everybody says, okay, yep, I understand what this is. I know what kind of movements can ensue. It's obviously a more difficult problem when things are in motion and you have some, you know, of the one of the infinite number of configurations of players and ball positions that you can have on the field. I guess my curiosity from here is let's say you begin an automatism automatism right you start working on some sequence everybody knows what's happening the ball is received by some player in a pocket of space they know that the preordained next step they know what that is but they see something new they see something potentially promising 
how much room is there for creativity in that environment? And what is there is there punishment for a player who then deviates from the automated sequence hmm. based on the fact that everybody else knows what's going on and suddenly now everybody's going to be like, wait, what? This Now you've completely changed things up on the rest of us. But perhaps it's a very compelling route to create something. How do you distinguish or how do you navigate those types well, of scenarios? I guess you could think about it as kind of an if-then type thing that happens. So if the opposition react in this way, then we do this. And it's, I guess it's how you formulate what the sensible opposition reaction is. Because you okay. want to prepare around the opposition's best reactions. You're like, okay, what's the best way to stop us from this particular action? Prepare around that, because that's going to be the most likely thing to occur. And it's also the most like the most difficult thing to break down. And so if they, if they don't react like that, there's more room for creativity. I think it will depend on a coach by, coach by coach basis. I can imagine someone like Antonio Conte getting more frustrated if people deviate from script than other coaches, for example. Mm. But I guess it depends on the coach's preference and what they see otherwise. But at least I think of it as a sort of if-then occurrence, because that's I guess that's the benefit conferred from automatisms is the team that plays you are only going to play you twice a year, whereas you're going to use the automatisms every single game. So mm. they're going to have to prepare oh. around automatisms. So if they prepare around your automatisms, that's only twice a season for them, so they're just less well-drilled in it occurring, and they have to upset their own defensive structure, which they have for the other 36 games. So I, the element of dynamic superiority then comes into play as well, because you, you're conducting these actions with more fluidity, so you can typically, I guess, bank on yourself being the team which, I guess, does this with greater competency. Interesting. I mean, it, it, it sounds to me like these automatisms are, are are very dangerous you know as a as an opposition coach i want to stop this at all costs possible and like the way i would think to do this is by playing very high pressure and i know you you mentioned that uh you know shaktar team perhaps that does not play a lot of teams that apply very high pressure and are maybe more able to do this but um that's my question is like do you do you think this could stand up against better pressure you know is it possible to work the ball around into you know these kind of predetermined automatisms when the opposition is just giving you no space, no time to do it. You know, is there, is there, you know, do you just have to be better technically, or is there a certain point at which this just becomes too hard to do under high pressure? And perhaps is this a reason why when Shakhtar enters the fray in Europe, they tend to suffer obviously much more than they do in the Ukrainian league, where they certainly have the advantage in terms of recruitment quality and coaching, uh, you know, pedigree. Suddenly when they're up against teams, I mean, I know that they played quite well. If they Each year they have a couple of games in the group stages that are excellent to watch. I know there's some sequences from when they played Real Madrid this year, even in particular, that were just so impressive to see. But that being said, they don't seem to have the same success. And perhaps it is, like Will is saying, the, the is, is it that the opponent is better prepared? Is it the higher pressure? What, what would you say is the reason why that happens? Um, I would say there's a lot of opportunities for automatisms to occur under high pressure. But I guess this brings in another concept of mine, which is jargony, which is the vicissitudes of verticality. Which is essentially, yes, <laughs> when, you're, when you're looking to build deep, it's, you're attracting a lot of pressure and looking to exploit space. So you have, firstly, the initial danger of just the turnover occurring in high areas. Then secondly, once you're attacking that space, 
the transitional conditions could be reversed onto you at any other point due to or just a turnover. So you're looking to expand the size of the pitch maximally to give yourself the most space to drop into to convert the dynamic superiority. But then as soon as a turnover occurs, the opposition now have well, all that space to attack. And it's things. It's this concept which makes me think that Pep isn't being disingenuous when he says teams that actually press high are so, so good, even when Man City beat them like 7-0 or whatever. It's because <laughs> it's a more challenging play still in that it upsets the control and upsets the rhythm which they're attempting to establish. So it's, there's, at least I imagine he feels there's much more chance a team, let's say, leads under Marcel Bielsa, man-marking high, mm-hmm. would win against them compared to a team that sits in a mid-to-low block because they should just sustain enough pressure that even though they're not going to win 7-0 in that regard, they feel more safe that they're going to win 2-0 compared to if they get beat 3-2 because of the more forcing play still, even though there's a chance they also win like 6-3, like they did in Leipzig. Yeah, and I think a similar thing applies to the Zerbi in that you have... When you build deep, the pitch is vertically larger because of well, the opposition can't play offside. So you, they're having to deal with, I guess, they're having to deal with 50 yards of space. Whereas the deeper you go into their space, the more they compact, and therefore the less space there is for your dynamic movements. So I, I, would say- I actually uh, I wanted to touch on that actually because I I read that in the article and that is something you know I've I've thought about this sport a lot but that's something I had really never considered before and that just blew my mind. So like what what are you saying is that if you you know pretty much start possession very very deep in your own half you can effectively make the opposition cover a much larger space than they have to anywhere else on the field because like you said exploiting the offside rule that you can't be offside on your own half and that that like fascinated me i just like hadn't thought of that i'm like wow that's such a cool new way to do it um that also seems very risky to me though uh which is the trade-off because you you're starting possession in an area you really don't want to have possession in for very long so you know if you're unable to break that first wave of pressure things can go south very very quickly from there yeah that's i'd say the derby teams compared to other teams that build up from the back are much more likely to just continually attempt they don't very rarely will you see just a direct clearance they always try and i guess work their way out precarious conditions which i think is based off of the idea that if the opposition are compacting around them like this they're going to have so much space once they escape the pressure yeah. so the risk reward's worth it i guess it depends well they got beat 5-0 by real madrid for example so it depends on it, it, they were real madrid in that game were man marking and i thought Shakhtar played through the pressure really well but they still conceded i think twice from direct turnovers so i guess it depends whether you assess the risk reward to be worth it but at least the underlying theory is the more space you have to attack the more space you can drop into the more space the time the player in possession will have the more space the opposition have to cover but then i guess conversely the ball gets turned over they then have those conditions to attack on you and they're much closer to your goal yeah i mean i i i love the concept you know i i you know i think the rewards outweigh the risk is just you have to be incredibly confident in your ability to do it um you know you've got to have some players that are technically excellent for whatever level they're playing at you know Shakhtar in the Ukrainian league might have that against Real Madrid maybe they give away a couple goals and uh, I guess yeah I'm, I'm, I don't know I I love the system I'm just trying to think about how it could translate into perhaps a league with a higher pace or with more pressing teams well, I think you could say that's an issue, especially profile-wise, 
Shakhtar's defensive midfielders aren't defensive midfielders. They're, <laughs> they're hyper technical players, and I think it's players like Marcus Antonio. Um, well, Tara Stepanenko is more of a defensive profile, but it's the usually I'd say the strongest pairings: Mykon or Macon and Marcus Antonio. Marcus Antonio in particular, I'd say, has the profile of an attacking midfielder. He's a tiny it's guy, now. Yeah, it, yeah, I think he's about five six. Yeah, yes. and, yeah. especially in the way he receives, and he had similar at Cesspool. They had Maxim Lopez, who mm, very yeah. similarly just isn't a defensive midfielder, but played in a double pivot and build up. And I think that's one of the reasons they get killed in transitions is just they don't have the profiles to deal with it. And I guess that's one of the trade offs, especially if you're working. I say at a lower level, Shakhtar is a high level, but when you're facing the European elite, yeah, that, that the conditions it's, it's are then reversed. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So it's. That's a trade-off you have to make. So if you want these hyper-technical players in your Shakhtar, because the hyper-technical players who are solid defensively are in the Premier League, yeah. or at Real Madrid, or at Barcelona. So you have to make some sacrifices. I think it's funny that you mentioned, Jack, risk versus reward as just a fundamental principle involved here. When Will and I were kids, he used to always tell me when we'd be out doing stupid younger kid things that life was about risk versus reward, and it seems <laughs> as though things have come full circle. Martin, um, Martin always tells me this. I generally never remember saying that. <laughs> You're out of your <laughs> mind. This was like, this was your trademark thing. It would be anytime anybody would show any sort of hesitation, you'd say, guys, life is about risk versus reward. <laughs> and it seems as though perhaps, you know, maybe Deserby was inspired by you. I don't know. I mean, it does, yeah. it does sound like me, I'll admit. I just, my memory is gone, I suppose. What, just the cadence of speaking? Yeah, probably. it's pretty spot on. Yeah. Okay, so so here's a question. Um, I think there's a quote that Deserby mentioned maybe in a press conference or some other context of interview uh, that he said something about the tougher the pressure, the more vertical further development. And I think that that speaks to this notion that... Um, you simply earn more space to work with when they come at you. And that as a concept in its most distilled form, I think is very, very interesting and allows for a lot of this play to flourish. Um, we've got limited time before we got to close up shop here, but I do want to touch upon a couple of little things. Maybe if you could just give us a, a quick summary of a couple ideas. We've rambled about a bunch of different kind of aspects of Deserby's play. I think all of them are, are quite unique and, and, and interesting in of themselves. Tell me a little bit about this. So there's this notion of provoking proximity that you've talked about a little bit in some of your pieces. Um, this idea of players that dribble until they engage somebody who steps and then you have a free man. Um, on Touchline Theory, I, know, I think when we first spoke last fall, I mentioned this, that I've called it hopping the fence when any player kind of breaks the opponent's line of confrontation and forces some sort of marking decision of the opponent that leaves a lose-lose scenario for them and, and you ultimately produce some sort of space or some sort of unmarked player. I guess my question in regards to this, and this kind of has to, come, has to do with the automatisms as well, what exactly do you, what's the contingency plan in place for when nobody steps, right? People will always say that if you have a, let's say you have somebody who drives into space and nobody steps, you just keep going until eventually you score, right? But in the case of, pretty good to me. I don't know. in the case of, of Jorginho shooting penalties, when Pickford doesn't make the first move, he falters, right? When, if I have Eric Garcia, that's uh, provoking the opposition press and he starts waltzing down the middle, and he's dribbling in the half space, and everybody says, all right, I mean, I'd prefer him to have the ball than, than Ansu Fati. Yeah, I don't really want Eric Garcia taking a shot either. And so I suppose, what is, what, what is the approach 
for when you are trying to wait for the opponent to give you something or that you can respond to in that regard you know we talk i guess we talked a little bit about being the protagonist in a lot of these right that you're setting the tempo as we talked about last week with this dynamic superiority but sometimes when you stop the ball you could envision a situation where you're waiting to see kind of what they give you i guess how would you remedy that given all of this well yeah i think it is an issue a lot of center backs have is you can typically tell how structured a team's build-up is by when oh yeah when the center back steps out if they don't receive the provocation that they're expecting if they just continue going forward without a plan and just allow the opposition to I guess funnel them into a space and then compact upon them. It's my favourite example of this was Damson Sanchez in the 2017 Europa League final. Mm. I don't know if you remember, but Rashford would position himself directly on the lift, and then the ball would have to go to Damson Sanchez, to which he just diagonally run over back. So he's behind them, so he just diagonally runs over, cutting off his space, and he just runs into the centre. Everyone compacts upon him. So I'd say that can be an issue if it's. You don't have any sort of contingencies. But because of how centrally compact Shakhtar are, there is almost always a central passing option should the uh, centre-back continue moving forwards. And in transition, they're protected because it typically implies a degree of rotation because you want to go forward, go forward, but you also need to be able to pass it backwards when they react. And then well, you want the person who's received the backwards pass and then quickly move it into space to exploit well, the yeah, uncovered I'm... space from the wh- whichever player steps out to meet the centre back. So I'd say, oftentimes there's a central pass there waiting, or if you just allow them to continue progressing, progressing, progressing. Well, yeah, then you should just have time and space in the final third. Which yeah, is and I, I would think itself. with uh, how centrally compact Shakhtar are in the earlier part of the field, it's going to be quite rare. There's not a time where there's someone who's just like close enough that they pretty much have to step when a center back is coming out. Because looking at the, you know, the the kind of mock formations you have through this article, there's almost nowhere where there's significant space for a center back to advance up the field completely uncontested. I don't think that's ever really going to happen playing with yeah. This I guess, I guess my point of curiosity is maybe more abstract. It's just this idea of, okay, we talk so much these days about the importance of ball carrying for center backs. Every single profile on the field suddenly is becoming more and more and more and more multifaceted, right? Same goes with goalkeepers now being involved involved in build-up. Same yeah. goes for what have you. Now your 10 needs to be a good sc- screening yeah. presser, right? Like there's all these different things now that we're tacking on and adding to the complexity of these players. I guess, you know... In a world in which a team says, okay, this team tends to try to build out by provoking pressure, by hopping the fence with their center backs, what if we simply don't take them? What is the solution there? Like you mentioned, Davinson Sanchez running himself into a corner, because for a center back, you're like, well, I mean, if you're if they're going to give me this, it's going to, you know, like, I'd imagine a guy like Gerard Piquet would probably start juggling and doing things and enjoying himself. <laughs> but the question becomes, I mean, what is the actual solution here? Everybody else stays on their mark and you're in space. Suddenly... You know, if you keep going further and further, whenever you inevitably lose the ball, now you have half the pitch to cover to defend. So at the end of the if for a smart defender, they're going to be like, well, I don't really want to be actually this high. So, But now what? You just take an errant shot into the stands and everybody laughs at you, and then the next time you do it, there's no provocation again? Oh, well, you just drop, drop uh, someone else in the center back, and, you know, you're fine. It's whatever. <laughs> I mean, defensively, sure. But yeah. I suppose my question is simply like, in attack, if the provocation never comes, what do you do? I don't know. Maybe just a I mean, question. I don't, I don't know. Do you, I would, 
like I don't know. I don't know how bad my center back is on the ball, but generally <laughs> I would I would rather have a completely uncontested player mm. in in you know the attacking areas of the field rather than most other things, even if it's not the ideal guy. I mean, these these guys aren't like that bad at a professional level, you know. Oh, they definitely a, aren't. A center back is going to be able to do something, you know, maybe win a corner or play like a decent through ball, like if you give him enough space to do it. You know, the, someone's going to have to step eventually. I think. Sure. Yeah. That's the line, that's the sort of direction I'd be inclined to go down as well. Is that you having a player within those areas uncontested is just beneficial in and of itself? Yeah. Right. Okay. So, final question: Since we are we're drawing, I guess we'll have to draw things to a close. Um, you mentioned Maxime Lopez. You mentioned Marcos Antonio. A couple of these other players that are technical that are in those six positions. Briefly touch upon. The importance of the interchanging movements of the pivots in build-up and and what they do that's so special because there's so much about this that i've read about sassuolo about shakhtar um what exactly are they doing that's that's unique in terms of being able to create space for one another and how do they complement each other with those movements well yeah i'd say there are two primary movements to talk about when it comes to the pivots you have the transition from 424 to 415 and how that occurs and that depends on well, yeah, player profile. So at it's frequently the left side of the defensive midfielder. It's happened to both Shakhtar and Sassuolo. I think just player profile-wise, that that player is more inclined to drop in. So then the right-sided defensive midfielder in deep build-up then centralizes, become the single pivot. But let's, I guess, imagine that they've performed a fail a failed rotation with the fullbacks. So the fullbacks overlap, but the ball's been rotated backwards. Then the single pivot, who is the near side DM as well, would then have to move into that fullback zone, and then the player who, well, he would centralize the far sided pivot would centralize. So I'd say, if you're looking for something more abstract, it is that the far sided pivot centralizes, and the near sided pivot supports the ball. Hmm. But that is in actions which are more spontaneous. Whereas more spontaneous and in deep build-up, whereas when it just comes to forming the base shape, I wouldn't say it's arbitrary, but you just want to have the four-one shape. So, however that occurs, whether it's defense midfielder dropping in, it's could be defense midfielder and build-up, then becomes an interior player. Just depends on whatever profiles you have in your team. Whether you want the left back to stay in the left back position, whether you want to push up the winger become an interior. Every, it, a lot of player profile dynamics in there. And so the idea here, the overarching goal is for one of those pivots eventually to receive, well, the, the pivot that doesn't initially get the ball to receive with their body facing the rest of the field so they can progress quickly? Or yeah. what's the logic behind why you have, say, one player come to the ball, one diagonally support them, negative, you play it from one to the next, I could imagine that now you have a guy that can just take the ball into space and you've already kind of dislodged their pressure to a certain degree. Mm. Everybody will have collapsed on the first receiver. The second one will likely be open. Is that the logic or is there a different kind of goal in mind? Um, could you say that again just so I make, I make sure I'm clear? Sorry. Sure. So I, I, I've seen some, some clips where let's say you have the right-sided six comes back to the right-sided center back who has the ball and they receive it, and then they play it kind of diagonally backwards, maybe to the other center back, maybe in this case to another, to the other pivot that has positioned themselves. That player now can receive 
facing the rest of the field and drive into space. I think one of the challenges that you mentioned with players receiving on the half turn, as an example, you need a really, really, really special, talented player to receive with their back to the rest of the field and be able to consistently turn in a way that doesn't at least once or twice a game result in a transition moment that's pretty perilous. And so this, the way that I see this, you can kind of engineer a, a moment in which you play small, short passes that enable one of your sixes to receive facing the rest of the field and to be able to attack into space, especially because when you play that first ball from the right center back to the right six, everybody is going to collapse around them yeah. for the most part because they yeah. know how important that player will likely be in many other systems. Um, the six, once they have the ball, you want to get on their back and prevent them from turning. And so once that occurs, the other six is open. Now they can really be the one that end up taking it forward. I guess I'm just trying to understand if that's really what's going on here or if there's different kind of underlying uh, motives. Yeah, no, I think it's embedded within a lot of what we've said throughout, which is firstly, well, yeah, they receive, because of the short passing connections, you want to be able to exploit the space which is available in front of you quickly. And it kind of, it relates to the slow tempo accelerating really quickly as soon as space becomes available and then once you're attacking space is where actions and rotations happen more fluidly. So you have the the slower rotation between the pivots which places them in an optimal place to then, well I guess, almost act as like a launching pad towards further attacks. So, well yeah, I think it's pertinent that you mentioned receiving forward so they can take their touch into space so the action just occurs much more quickly and the quicker the action occurs the better chance you have of exploiting the space because the opposition have less time to react. Cool. Cool. Um, Will, do you have any final thoughts or final questions? I I think that about covers it on my end. You guys didn't ask me how my games went. Thanks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, I, think I was maybe saving that for the introduction, which now you've exposed to the world we're going to be doing after this. But uh, all right, we'll, tell us. We'll cut it. We'll cut it. No, no, no. Tell me. How, how are your games? Yeah. Tell the us. Games, the games went great. We won 3 0 and 4 0. Uh, okay. You know, folk, I, I read uh, this article actually and tried to. You know, oh, figure yeah, out who my unstoppable player was, and I did. And uh, I, I focused on getting the wide back forward, drifting one of the attacking midfielders over to his side to create overloads, have him run off that to get free once the defenders got distracted. Wow! He scored five of the goals and assisted the other two, so it worked. Oh great. my gosh! Yeah. Unstoppable, yeah. seriously. Pretty, pretty unstoppable. I, yeah. so. I think that bodes well for a for a Pep Guardiola victory tomorrow, don't you think? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't. I can't watch a game tomorrow. I'm uh. I have two more games at the same time, so I'm gonna have to watch it on tape delay and hope I don't yeah. get spoiled. Which uh, I'll be sure to text you as soon as something happens. I'll hit you up with like the the classic, uh, pseudo innocuous text that makes it obvious that something bad occurred. You know, like uh oh uh, so, ha, ha, how's your afternoon going? <laughs> One of those where you know I get away with not really saying much, but you know that. City won the title. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't take much. Generally, if I get a text from Martin, I know something terrible is about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, um, Jack, is there is there anything else that you wanted to cover that we maybe have failed to touch upon? I know we've we've sped through a bunch of different things here. Um, I think we covered broad strokes everything quite well, and we went into in depth in particular topics like automatisms. I probably would have talked more about 424 had I got the chance, but that's that is less related to the Zerbi and more related to my love of 424. So all right, maybe maybe a, another episode sometime yes. soon we can dive into that. I think yeah. Will and I have also chatted a little bit about 
um, having some guests on to talk about specific structures and what that produces and maybe in a more kind of along those same lines structured format where we go through build up, we go through different defensive configurations, final third uh, set pieces, yeah. all these kind of different things that come with that. I know that for instance, I love studying these, you know, three, two fives or two, three fives and build up because it's such a Pep Guardiola thing. Um, I've been very captivated by that. And I know there's some similarities positionally that with some of the Derby stuff, perhaps the four, two, four can be an entire episode unto itself. So hold on to that thought because perhaps one day we'll get back to it. Maybe next time. Yeah. Until then. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah, enjoyed it's, it. course. it's been great, Jack. I hope you enjoyed, you know, it's, uh, yeah, no, I I enjoy speaking football, just with especially, well, yeah, having a conversation at this sort of level is difficult because, well, yeah, you're constrained geographically, which is, I guess, the nice thing about something like Twitter is, oh well, yeah, Martin can hit me up in the DM and I can just have a conversation with someone. But, yeah, of course, I, I have a lot of respect for football wise, and I didn't know you before, Will. However, I'm, I'm placing you on that pedestal as well. Oh, thanks. Well, <laughs> don't, don't read my Twitter. You'll put me right back. <laughs> yeah, that's. I guess we can. That can be our final parting note. Is everybody that's listening to this, please follow Will on Twitter. It is a vacant, uh, barren wasteland. I have. He's I got, have like three tweets. They're all pretty good. Yep. Um, thanks for supporting my precise argument here. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, I think Jack, the pleasure is all ours. Thank yeah. you so much for enlightening us and and for bringing your expansive vocabulary to the table as well i always appreciate somebody who can coin different terms to really really capture what they're trying to say so can you can you say vicissitudes of verticality for me just one time martin before we go (laughs) oh me vicissitudes of verticality how about it we can do a tongue Uh, twister there it is maybe i think if you say that three times fast in the mirror there's like a devil that appears or something like that i i i I, um Definitely, like when I was reading your work, Jack. Like, yeah. I like read your writing style. I'm like, oh yeah, it's no wonder Martin likes this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I think that's actually one thing I pick up from studying history. If you have to read a lot of translations, mm-hmm. and when things are translated, it's often oh yeah, direct word for word. So the word vicissitudes comes up a remarkable amount of times. So um, I, it must it's maybe just a more common word for me because I see it quite frequently. No, I, I like it. I, uh, yeah, no, no. You know, you 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 pick a word. It it may be like an interesting one, but then you hold to it the entire time. You know, it, it makes it easy to understand the concepts. I quite like that. I like that about Martin's work as well. You know, even if you pick a strange term, it's like you know you get used to it quickly, and then suddenly that's just what you call it. I'm going to be talking Aww. to my players about the vicissitudes of virtuality tomorrow. I feel Long bad for heart. them. <laughs> <laughs> me too. That might be Jeez. that might be one of the the sweeter things you've ever said to me, William. I appreciate that. Um, but and maybe in the next piece that I write, I'll just choose single horrendous terms and use them once, and just and just yeah. give you a, a, a lot, you know lots, a big middle finger. Yeah. Lots of unexplained acronyms, please. That would be exactly. <laughs> well, okay. Um, with that, Jack, we have a tradition on the show where at the end we say a special little phrase. So. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time.